Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the stories that shape us, and how we can better understand people different from ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Gillian Richardson. Gillian is a loneliness expert, facilitator, and events host. She's the author of Unlonely Planet, How Healthy Congregations Can Change the World. We spoke about the drivenness of her waspy East Coast American childhood, how she balances vulnerability in her public profile, the cringiness and rawness of talking about loneliness and the associated shame, and how her adventures in finding belonging in secular congregations eventually led her to join a church. I hope you enjoy listening. Gillian, I'm going to hit you with a hefty word, which is sacred. And maybe before we get to what you hold sacred, how did you react to that word? Is it very familiar? Do you feel attracted to it? Is it a bit spiky and off-putting? Is it one you use a lot? Where does this kind of sit in your emotional color wheel? It feels a little intimidating, I think, because I'm not someone who is really formally in religious spaces too much. And so I feel like sacred, I want to choose my words carefully because while I'm not necessarily religious, I do think that things are sacred. And so choosing what I hold sacred felt like a big task. Mm, Yeah, it's okay. It is. (laughs) It's supposed to be. You're like, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to say I don't really expect, almost no one comes with like fully formed definitive answers. And there's quite a bit of theory about this in academic circles that we almost don't know what we feel hold sacred until it's transgressed. And we Mm -hmm. get that like, like, ick reaction of something's feeling like deeply wrong. Um, But we might go through our whole lives and not know. And there's people who think there's no such thing as an individual sacred. There's only the collective sacred. So it's basically an excuse to like go deep early on. Yes. Um, So dial down the intimidation uh, I just want to know what came up for you what 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 when you were reflecting did you, what was your guess about what might be sacred for you so the thing that popped up first for me was community healing hmm. that feels really sacred to me and by that I mean spaces where people come together to help kind of unburden themselves of something And so that could look like a 12-step meeting. It could look like a men's group, or uh, I'm part of this organization called Woman Within, which is, um, it's a weekend for women to kind of heal together. Uh, And for me, sacred and magic are kind of interchangeable. And those spaces feel really magic to me, like going from seeing someone who clearly in their body language and their spirit is just heavy and burdened And by sharing with people, it's like they transform into a totally new person, just lighter and supported. And I think I'd imagine if someone said, "Okay, uh, government mandate, those things can't happen anymore because they're free and there's not a therapist there. And so it's not safe. Uh, We're going to nix all that, that stuff. I would fight for that. So tell me more about, um, paint me a picture of young Gillian growing up. What were the ideas, if church was there, but not really formative, what were the kind of formative ideas or narratives that Mm -hmm. you picked up that have shaped you, maybe, you know, positively or negatively? 
Yeah, it's really interesting because I've seen some friends from childhood recently, and I'm really lucky. I have some friends who I've known since I was literally five years old, and we all grew up in the same town. And now as adults, we can see how we're all as adult women working to kind of step away from some of these lessons that were really ingrained in our in our hometown. And we grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. So it's a very kind of like upper class, very white town. And on the flip side, like the, the positives, it's really beautiful, like a very safe place to live, uh, incredible schools, but very competitive feeling. Like it's kind of that culture. Uh, and I know so many places are like this, where kind of the parents like to compete by how many accomplishments their child has like who's going to Yale and who's going to Brown and who's on varsity swim team and like how many AP classes can you take? Like yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Um, very driven by the sound of it. Very driven. So I think the kind of core lessons we received growing up were that um, like money is more important than happiness. Uh, like whatever work you have, it should be something that's kind of brag worthy, like something that you and your family can hold up as status. Yeah. Uh, and that you just always have to fill your time with accomplishments and things in order to just be a enough person. Yeah. And how much, so small, small this is going to sound ridiculous, but as a, kind of, a small naive word question, as always, I've read some of your book and I've been listening to podcasts with you. What, the word that keeps coming up, and I think you've used it, or maybe I'm just imposing it, is waspy. Oh, and yeah. To explain that for British listeners, because I basically, I know it from Gilmore Girls. When yes. you speak, I'm imagining your childhood was basically Lorelai Gilmore's childhood. Is yeah. that, what does it mean? And, and do you think that's a kind of dominant ideology, that kind of waspy world mm -hmm. that is more broadly in American culture? And especially in the East Coast of America, uh, so for people who don't know WASP, like W-A-S-P stands for Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Uh, and so kind of a jokey slang term is, oh, they're really WASPy. Um, and so, like you said, the Gilmore Girls, like the country club, the big house. Quite the so very, preppy. Like, the preppy buttoned up kind of like stern mannerisms of like the parents and Gilmore Girls. Um and to give some extra context for me personally, my mom is Irish. So like very, uh, like emotionality is, is not super there. Very quiet, um, put together, reserved. So how, how they made this daughter, I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's kind of the culture. And explain to me the Protestant bit, because it sounds like church was around, but what, what yes. do your parents have deep faith when it was private or was it a cultural thing? How did it play out in your childhood? Yeah, well, so my parents, they they did actively make a choice to go to a church with me and my sister that was more relaxed because they both grew up in a pretty uh, conservative religious upbringing. My dad grew up in, uh, in the South and was like going to church every week, sometimes multiple times a week, had a very religious family. Uh, and my mom grew up in the South of Ireland. And so obviously seeing that like religion is something that's literally tearing the country apart. Uh, the fact that my mom was also, I might have just messed up which part of Ireland. So sorry. Oh, no, 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 no
Oh, no, there is no reason to. It may have been Northern Ireland if the trouble was very active, but yeah. the whole island of Ireland has been formed by that conflict. Totally. And my mom, she was uh, Protestant in her boarding school, which in her boarding school was like really, really in the minority. Gosh. Um, and so I grew up in a congregational church in Southport, Connecticut, and very, like by Connecticut standards, very relaxed. Like you didn't have to dress up to go to church. Um, in our Sunday school, they talked about like black holes and string theory and science sometimes. Uh, it was just, for me, the church wasn't in the town that I lived in. And so all of the kids who were there, they went to school together and I was the one kid who didn't go to school with them. And so I always kind of felt like I didn't fit in there. Uh, and so it was never really a place I looked forward to going. And there was a different church in my town that I actually went to their youth group instead because all my friends went to that youth group. And how did the, did you believe in God as a child? Do you think, I always feel nervous dropping the G-bomb. It's like quite a yeah. heavy thing to ask, but was, was it, was that, yeah, tell me about the God part. <laughs> Honestly, it was not something I really thought about that much at all. Like I I, it's funny to me now because as an adult, these are questions that I love thinking about. But when I was getting confirmed, and in, in my church, we got confirmed older. We got confirmed when we were like 15 going into 16. Um, I just remember questioning everything and like asking lots of questions, like being like, how do we know this is any of this is true? Like I was kind of the, the skeptic of our group which our pastor said when I got confirmed, she was like, Jillian asked the most questions of the group. Uh, yeah, I guess I, it just didn't seem pertinent to my life at all. The impression I get from your writing is in some ways you're, you're the, you are or have been the kind of archetypical young millennial elder generation, mm -hmm. archety archetypal religious nun in the N-O-N-E sense, in the sense of not hostile, but just not very interested, like not... Mm -hmm. assumption uh, impressions of the church being not just not a place for you like not a place for a particular generation of young people coming through like how did you get from that being confirmed there to kind of shedding I guess part of that identity and filling in of quite a sort of settled non-religious identity yeah well I so I wrote a book about community outside of organized religion called Unlonely Planet and writing that book, I, I knew I wanted to write a book about community and I wanted to write a book about loneliness because those are just ideas I really wanted to explore. And a book is the best way to do that. And part of the process of writing a book is figuring out like, what's my unique angle? Why will this book be different than all the other books about this topic? And what seemed to come up in some studies about loneliness was that as attendance and organized religion is going down, especially for young people that correlates with loneliness going up. And so I was kind of just thinking, can I dive into if these two things are actually connected to each other? Like, is there a cause and effect or is it just something that happens to be the case? And through writing that book, I ironically got more interested in organized religion and realized all of these religious leaders I'm talking to these people who are really daily exploring these issues of faith, 
they seem to have something that I want for myself and that I think the world could use more of that through their faith, they seem more connected to these values of love and community and connection, because there's kind of something bigger that's calling them to invest in those values every day. Mm. And I guess it kind of started to feel shallow for me to not explore those things. I'm like, there's this whole other world that I'm just going to not do any of it. That seems now that I've explored it, that just seems foolish to me for myself. Yeah. Because your book is called about, it's called, on Lonely Planet, something about the power of healthy congregations. Yes, really, healthy congregations can change the world. Yeah, and so I've been reading a bit about it this morning and thinking it through, but to paint me the picture of where it started because you, you, you have carved out this place for yourself as the kind of, you, you laughed because you were like, someone was like, oh, she's the loneliness woman. Yeah. Like, you know, as the loneliness woman, as, as a person who speaks about loneliness and what we need to overcome it. But you're very honest about the fact you can't really do that without being vulnerable and being personal. So it started very personally, I think, when you moved to New York City. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so when I moved to New York, I really only knew one or two people here, but I was really excited to move to the city, originally because I was kind of hell-bent on writing for late-night television, and I was just like, I'm graduating college early, I'm getting to New York, this is my place, like, the day after Christmas, 2015, was when I moved to New York. Like, uh, I was just ready. Um, and the first night I was in New York, I was supposed to hang out with a friend. And I was so excited. I was like, first night out as an adult in New York. Here we go. And like, I text my friend and I shower and I haven't heard from him. I changed and I haven't heard from him. And like, I put on my makeup and I realized like, oh, I'm not going to hear from him. Like the one friend I have, my one plan bailed on me. And it was kind of that moment where I was like, I'm in a new place. I'm in a new stage of my life. I don't have a job. I don't know anyone here. And it felt really scary, like really vulnerable. And I feel like I kind of took that feeling and in that moment, I was too scared or too uh, kind of unequipped to really feel my emotions to actually go into it. And instead I was just like, no, I'm going to cover this scary feeling with a bunch of stuff. (laughs) And I just filled my calendar with going to events and meeting new people. And while not necessarily the most skillful it was kind of my start in getting really interested in spaces that facilitate connection and events because New York city, it's kind of like one of the best places in the world for all that stuff. And how, and you've been on this really interesting journey of beginning to help, help kind of create an event culture that deliberately forces people into these slightly more vulnerable, slightly more open connections that basically normalizes the idea that everyone, maybe not everyone, but that most people, many, many more people than we think are very lonely. And you talk about going from I'm lonely, something is defective with me to, oh, we're all lonely. And I'm going to be the one who will talk about it. 
But I'm going to, I'm going to confess something. And I think the only reason I feel safe to do this, because I think this won't be the first time this has happened to you and you've written about it. But there is something really cringy about this whole topic, right? The, yeah. the, the like rawness of human need to be seen and to see people and to connect with them. Particularly, I think, as a Brit, there's like one other click over. <laughs> totally. Where we're like, yeah. irony, cynicism, earnestness, self-protection, and anything, like some of the stories you tell about camps where people have silly names or like cuddle puddles mm-hmm. to top people's touch, you know, the need for touch to top it up. My, my research brain, which knows the power of this stuff, is going, yeah, yeah, really important. And my whole body is like, ugh. You're like, no, don't do it. <laughs> so how did how did you overcome? Because you've had you've had you've had to be pretty you've been vulnerable is it's sort of overused now, but very much the public person who's prepared to say, mm-hmm. I have been and sometimes I still am deeply lonely and I need people. Yeah. How, tell me tell me about that. How do you do it? How do you maintain it? Are there times where you're like, well, screw this, I'm getting too much flack? Mm-hmm. How do you hold that position in a healthy way, I guess? Yeah, well, it definitely wasn't what I thought I was doing when, so when I started my newsletter, The Joy List, and it's, it's a weekly newsletter of events you can go to by yourself and leave with a new friend uh, in New York City. I just started it because after the 2016 election in America, New York felt like it was being torn apart. Like I've never felt this energy in the city of just so much despair. Like people were crying publicly all over the place. There was kind of this energy of like, I feel like I can't trust people. This country is being torn apart. Just so, so much desperation. And a lot of political projects were starting around that point. Like so many people saying we have to bridge the divide and we have to talk to each other. And that wasn't my expertise. Like I don't have a lot of knowledge in politics, so I would be a garbage person at starting a project like that. Uh, But what I did know, because I'd spent the past year going to all these cool places, was that the very least I could connect people to spaces where they could be in community and connection and just kind of fill their heart up a little bit. So that was why I started it really. And I talk about that less, but it was really just because of the 2016 election. Like the, the joy list started in November, 2016. Uh, but as I started to do it and I kind of talked about my own experience of feeling lonely in New York, it was like, I'd unlocked this thing and suddenly people at parties and strangers who didn't even live in New York city were emailing me like this confessional to say like, Oh, I also feel lonely. And it just kind of kept coming up, it it wasn't a thing where I kind of made the decision, like, I'm going to be a loneliness expert. Like, I was just like, I'm going to do an events newsletter for fun and whatever. But there was, there was this one moment I was at a conference in Baltimore and this, this awesome guy named Sinclair Caesar ran it. And it was about mental health for entrepreneurs. And he'd brought me there to just kind of facilitate some conversations. And I, I told this group of women, I was kind of still experimenting with my own personal bio as like, I always am. Uh, and I told this group of women, I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm writing a book and it's about loneliness. And I 
uh, I have a newsletter and it's about helping people be less lonely in New York. And my prompt for them was, oh, what do you need help with in your business? That's kind of what we were there to discuss. And it was a circle of maybe eight women and all of them said, I want help making friends. It was like, I gave them permission to say this thing that they never would have said otherwise. Like it's a business conference. And the thing that blew my mind the most is there are these two women sitting next to each other. And one woman said, they're maybe in like their fifties. One woman said, my daughter just left to college and I don't want to bother my friend and say that I would like to see her more because I'm feeling kind of lonely. And this other woman who's sitting next to her said, well, my daughter just left for college and I, I just don't want to feel needy. Like, I don't want to bother my friend. She's got so much going on. I, so I guess I'm just going to hang out on my own. And these two women sitting next to each other were talking about each other. They were each other's best friends sitting next to each other. And it took me a totally random, like 24 year old woman to get them to have this conversation because they both felt so much shame about literally just needing their friend. Like you said, it feels so cringy to own. Like, yeah, I'm in this big transition in my life. My daughter, this form of social connection I had is gone. And I need a new form of social connection. Yeah. Like so normal. Yeah. So, you, But it, it, that moment made me see like, oh, there is a social role for someone starting the conversation. And especially someone like me who I'm, I'm very bubbly and very uh, extroverted. And so it kind of is like, oh, well, if this person who seems like she's got this set of social skills that people desire, if she feels lonely, then like I can feel okay yeah. and permissioned to say so as well. Yeah. So I I am very much on board with the power of vulnerability for creating space for other people to feel less alone, not just in their loneliness, but in lots a range of things to say, oh, you too. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just me. You seem like you've got all your stuff together, but maybe you don't feel like that all the time. But I have, I'm particularly interested in the way the public conversations play out and the kind of media landscape. And what I see is that female voices feel much more at home with vulnerability and sometimes mm-hmm. that their vulnerability is used against them or yeah. it's the only way to monetize their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes I think the voices that most need vulnerability are the least comfortable with it. Oh, so, when, so, so true. Yeah, when you're, th- when you're thinking about it, because I've been following you on Twitter, I realized I was following you on Twitter before I even came across thinking, oh yeah, we got connected through someone else. Mm-hmm. But you're, you know, you talk about your therapy. You're one of the most kind of straightforwardly vulnerable people that I follow. Which I find oh, very, thank you. Yeah, I find it very refreshing. But do you have like, these are things I don't talk about. Or mm-hmm. do you have the Brené Brown thing of like, this is a vulnerability hangover. I wish I'd not said that. Or has it been just broadly positive the whole way through? Oh, totally not. (laughs) Definitely not. I think I've gotten way better at holding back a lot of stuff in my life, or at the very least, waiting a period of time to share. Um, Because I think what I used to do, and of course, I sometimes still do this, but I'm really working on not is like, because I, I send my newsletter out every Monday, and it starts with the story from my life. So say something happens to me on a Friday, I write about it Sunday night and then it goes out to thousands of people. 
And I might not think like, oh, um, maybe I should have processed that involved, a bit more. Yeah, like I should have processed that. Maybe I should have asked permission from my friend who I'm like talking about in the story, like not men- not naming them, but like they're in it. Um, and I've I've had a few fights and arguments with people where I was just like fully in the wrong. Um, and so realizing like, take some time. Patience is not my strong suit. And so that's that's something that I'm always trying to work on. Um, and also I kind of have a rule for myself that I don't share stories of my own personal friendships very often, if at all, like, I don't like to share photos of my friends or anecdotes necessarily between me and friends in my life because it feels like I'd be monetizing my friendship or like using my friends as a way to prove that I'm good at my job, yeah. which feels gross. Yeah, that's a helpful yeah. thing. Um, talk to me about junk values because your work is, you know, you're very good at saying there is a loneliness epidemic and it is harming our health. And Mm -hmm. it is from a kind of Christian theological perspective, we talk a lot about kind of relational values in society and, um, and connection as a kind of deep Trinitarian value of societies that hold together and are healthy and are demonstrating the ability to love our neighbors, right? And if there's a loneliness epidemic, that's not helping. And you take this uh, phrase from Johan Hari about junk values, um, which I think kind of reveal an underlying anthropology, an underlying sense of what a good life looks like. And it relates to your point about the sort of waspy mm-hmm. background. What do you think the junk yeah. values are that are driving a loneliness e- epidemic? Oh, I think it's really what we talked on a little bit earlier of essentially like individualism and this deep shame of asking anything of anyone else. Like it's, and I still battle this because it's so kind of like the water I'm swimming in as an American and as someone who has like an Irish mom and grew up on the East coast and like a kind of maybe like middle upper class society um, to even just say to someone like, Hey, I've had a really hard day. I'd love it if you could come over and we could just hang out. Like a totally reasonable thing to ask, but there is so much fear on top of that. Like those women at the conference who said, like, I don't want to be needy. I, like, I can just do this on my own. I don't want to burden my friend. Um, when I think in reality, we're just, we're lying to ourselves. Like our friends can say no. We're just too scared to ask because it feels scary to own that we need other people. Why is it though? Surely it's <laughs> like, why? why? Yeah. What is it? What is the story that we're telling about humanity that we don't need anything? That's just insane. I think it feels very much like the, um, at least the American narrative of like pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and being a self-made, like this phrase self-made person is just everywhere. And I think it's so funny because it's like, who is self-made? Like, that's not a real thing. Like we all have help and we all have people who are supporting us and we all have some advantages with like connections and stuff over other people. Um, And yet it feels like the kind of myth that some folks aspire to, and I can definitely fall into this, is 
like, oh, they did it all on their own. Like they came from nothing and they did it all on their own. It's like that, that seems way less joyful and way less fun and way less nourishing than like they did it with the love and support of a bunch of people who care about them. Yeah, there's something about, and again, it's a theological thing we've been pondering recently at Theos about about gift, about seeing the world as something to be grabbed that only the strong can grab or Mm -hmm. receiving the world as a gift to be received and acknowledging. There's a kind of humility in acknowledging how much you've received and... Yeah, and then if that's the norm, then then asking and also giving of yourself to other people mm-hmm. feels less like transactional. Like you need to go, okay, what's ever what's the advantage everyone's getting here, so that we're all pursuing our, you know, our, our individual interest, um, mm-hmm. but more of a posture. Uh, I want to ask about secular congregations because you talk a lot about there being something particular about not just lots and lots of individual friendships, but groups of people who are in some ways committed and consistent and have um, maybe some kind of eldership or mentorship structure. Um, what, what, how did you find these secular congregations that you felt were in some ways um, re- echoing maybe some of the religious congregations that earlier generations would have gone to for their sense of belonging? Yeah, well, I definitely wasn't doing it consciously. Like I wasn't going to these spaces to say, oh, I don't love church. So let me go find a space that's kind of like church, but is secular. Uh, But when I started kind of looking at why some spaces feel particularly sacred or magical or connected, I really think it is because there is some element of faith, whether it's named or not. And an example that I love using is this community in New York City uh, started by Jesse Israel called MediClub. And it, I think it was a monthly gathering where people would be hanging out and like having drinks or coffee. Then somebody from the community would stand up in front of everyone and share a really vulnerable story. And like a story that they practiced beforehand and then there would be music, then there'd be meditation, and then you would get into small groups and talk based off of a kind of prompt that the story had inspired. And then people would hang out afterwards as well, kind of like coffee hour after church. And like essentially looking at the structure of it, it's like there's a sermon and there's group singing and there's talking to your neighbor, uh, and there's meditation instead of prayer. And I think it just makes so much sense that this generation of people like me who feel so distant from church would gravitate to this thing that feels safer for them. And that I found in these spaces, especially the vulnerability of the speaker is so much higher than I'd ever seen a pastor be. Like someone would stand up and talk about uh, growing up and being homeless and being sexually abused by a parent and saying this in front of a room of people they mostly didn't know. And it it was funny. I, I liked to notice after someone would speak, looking at the faces of people who'd never been there before when they realized they were about to talk in a small group with other people. 
And it was often the men who like they, I, it was like their eyes started to look really scared <laughs> because they're like, oh my God, that person just shared that. Like, what are, what are we going to talk to each other about? Um, but it always blew my mind every time. Cause I would always try and talk to people I'd never met. How it always seemed like we were like meant to be in that small group and we would share really interesting, vulnerable things with each other. Uh, I'm such a sucker for those moments of like small group. You never met these people. You'll probably never see them again. Uh, there's just something so intimate about that moment. Yeah. Um, spell out for me why church, you said something like church wouldn't feel as safe for them. Mm-hmm. Unpack that for me. Well, I mean, for my identity, I, I'm pretty much straight. And so I didn't grow up with the church telling me that I'm a bad, sinful person. Um, and I'm really lucky that I didn't grow up really with any religious trauma. Like for me, the church was just boring, but it didn't tell me that like my body is sinful or like as a woman, I need to serve my husband or uh, like if I have a different sexuality, I'm going to hell uh, I know a lot of people who did grow up with that and they're going to be unpacking that for the rest of their lives to feel comfortable in who they are. Uh, and so I think there's a huge advantage to be in a space that feels sacred. Like you're literally sitting in silence with people and honoring somebody's story and listening to someone sing a beautiful song and singing together. They actually developed a community song that we would sing every month together. And like they would split it up into three parts, like a choir. Uh, so it really is very similar to a religious service. And there's just none of the kind of extra baggage of the, the shame component that I think, unfortunately, so many religious services still have. Because you are now, having been involved in lots of secular congregations, you are now very involved in an act. I don't want to say actual church as if there's like real churches yeah. and non-real churches, but a church that is more church. It's a church. It's a church. And I mean, in the, the spectrum of churches, it's probably the least churchy church, but it is a church. It's Judson Memorial Church in New York City. And how did you end up there having been on this adventure in secular, secular congregations? <laughs> so I first realized that Judson is a a church because there's this thing called ecstatic dance uh, and they host ecstatic dance in New York in Judson Memorial Church. In Judson, it's part of the no pews movement. So there are no pews in the church. There's just folding chairs. And so if you go in, it kind of looks like you're just in an event space that used to be at church. Like you wouldn't think it was still an active church. And after going to this dance party for a few months, I remember someone said like, oh, you know, this is an actual church, right? Like what kind of church lets this event happen in their space? Like all these half naked, sweaty, screaming, hippie New Yorkers. Um, And I started kind of looking around and I saw these pamphlets and it's like, um, how do we support sex workers? How do we support trans rights? How do we support immigrants? Uh, And I was really struck by these conversations that are kind of the more difficult conversations that I'd never seen any church growing up try and even touch, let alone kind of put up in the front as like, these are the things that we care about and this is what we do. Uh, and a friend of mine, Ava, she, she joined, they have this thing called a community ministry program. Some people who are training to be actual ministers and some people who are kind of more secular leaders or activists, uh, training 
to show up in the community in a better way. And she really loved the program and she loved Donna and Micah, the ministers who were running it. And I was like, I think I want to start going to these services. And I very quickly decided I wanted to become a member. I think after like a month, I I joined the program to become a member and was a member by March of 2020. So right before the pandemic happened. Yeah. And you, you know, they take the Eucharist, there is a sermon, there's kind of worship songs. I'm going to ask you the question again, just because I'm always nosy about this. Mm-hmm. On the God stuff, like, is that still really very much not what you're there for or what your heart needs? Or is it a live question? It always feels like asking about someone's sex life. So I'm sorry if this is too vulnerable. Oh, I love it. Oh my, these are the conversations. This is why I love having religious folks in my life because like you said, with so many people, this feels like deeply personal and taboo. Um, I mean, it's like why I love having sex positive people in my life. We're like, let's talk about all these things. Uh, so for me now, God is actually really important in my life and spirit is really important in my life. And living in New York City, it feels like something I can't necessarily talk about that much. And that's why I really actively curate my friend groups to have those conversations. Yeah. My colleague Nick's written a book called Atheists, The Origin of the Species, which traces the way that atheism reflect just displays itself differently depending on the on the context that it's in. So American atheism is actually quite different from French atheism because of the history of kind of anti-clericalism, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, at the end of the book, he talks about the history of non-religious congregations and the ethical society and the various things. But that I think the thing that's always a challenge is the why of why show up, like why continue to... and it's one of the, it's one of, I think, the the sort of gifts or resources that the church has is it just is able to narrate that story in a particular way with a metaphysics. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the, it's one of the key things you point out about congregations that there is a self-sacrificial element to this, right? In order to overcome loneliness, you need to commit to other people. You need to like yeah. put yourself out a bit sometimes in order to draw closer. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you my final question, which is about... Um, what you've learned about engaging across difference because you have just like traversed a bunch of tribes in a really interesting way. Totally. Um, And I'd say a lot of our listeners aren't religious or they're kind of spiritual but not religious might really, um, really chime with with your sense of kind of the religious nuns and and concerns about the church's sexual ethic and what it means for LGBT people, etc., and then there's a bunch of people who are, um, you know, committedly religious people, a bunch of Christians. What would you say to each group about what you wish they understood about the other? Because you you feel like someone who's been in both. What do, for, for non-religious yeah. people who are allergic to religion, mm-hmm. what would you like them to understand? And for religious people who maybe are scared of those outside the church mm-hmm. or worried about the rise of religious nuns or feel a hostility, what would you like them to understand about that group? Yeah, I love this question because I really... I see myself as like a bridge person in a lot of different areas. Like I love being in both worlds. Um, I think that for people who are intimidated by religious folks, I think I would say most of these people are in these spaces because they want to be a better person and they want to show up in the world in a more loving and kind way. Like when you get down to it, that's really why so many people go to church. Like they want to be reminded of what it feels like to embody love. They want to give and receive love, be loved. 
that's kind of the whole thing. Uh, if I was going to be super, super simple about it. Um, and then for the folks who are in the world of religion, who are kind of intimidated by the people who are not religious, I would say you probably share a lot of the same values. It's just that there are a lot of people who have been told by organized religion that they are inherently sinful. And so, of course, you don't want to be in a space that's telling you that your nature is bad. Like, why would you want to be in a space that tells you that? And so for those people, being in other spaces really helps you get to the same place of giving and receiving love more freely and feeling inspired by, you might call it your spirit or faith or connection. It's like all the same interchangeable stuff. Gillian Richardson, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.